Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast powered by Twisted Tea. It is our Sunday SEC football conversation with Weldon Rodenberg. Coming at you a day later, that's on me. I was on a vacation and ended up in a spot on Sunday where I could not record. So Weldon and I got after it a day later. We talked to Ole Miss's lost to Alabama, spun it for LSU, and where this team stands heading into what is probably the biggest game of the Lane Kiffin era, happening seven days after what we thought was the biggest game of the Lane Kiffin era. So buckle up. I think you'll enjoy the conversation. Before we get to that, though, I want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxer. Rent the Sip Oxer's turn bear unit is located off of Old Taylor Road. It sleeps eight comfortably. It's gated. It includes amenities such as a pool, tennis courts, and a sauna. It's a terrific location, less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus. Straight shot to Swayze Field. Straight shot basically, to Vaught-Hemingway Stadium, and of course, right after that, the Grove as well. Check it out today. It can be tough to find availability on big weekends in Oxford. Rit the Sip Oxford has you covered. Maybe you're just passing through on a random weeknight. Maybe you're coming up for a weeknight basketball game and you don't want to mess for the hotel. Rit the Sip Oxford has you covered. Go online to rentthesipoxford.com to check availability today. If you use the promo code RIPPYRIGHTS, that is R-I-P-P-E-E, rights, all W-R-I-T-E-S, you get 100 bucks off any two-night stay. Check them out. Rit the Sip Oxford. Com. This podcast is also brought to you by C Spire. Time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with C Spire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable home internet connection for you and your family. That's why C Spire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. C Spire also prides themselves with best customer service in the home internet market. Their customer service is award-winning, local, based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. C Spire provides 1 gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and Southern Alabama regions. C Spire is also proud to announce the release of their brand new 2 gigabit and 8 gigabit home internet plans. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Call or go online to cspire.com slash home today and use promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and you'll get one month of free service. So you get a free month of internet service and the best internet service in the market just for listening to this podcast. How about that? Check them out. Seaspire customer inspired. All right, here's Weldon on the first loss of the season for the Rebels and what's next. All right, we now welcome on former Ole Miss recruiting specialist, Rippy Wright's football correspondent, Weldon Rodenberg. A day later than usual, it is my fault this time. I was playing in the... Uh, <laughs> Slavic Invitational down on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Maybe there's a listener out there who's playing the Slavic. There's 9 billion teams in that sucker. And we got an afternoon round on Sunday. And so I kind of texted you. I was like, hey, I think the pod may be out today. We'll regroup on Monday. So that's on me if you're not getting it at your normal time. But we are about to do our post-game slash LSU look forward a day later. Um, I went down there with what has become affectionately known on the podcast between you and I is just our crew or that crew. Um, you know, you're a year behind yeah. me in school, a lot of mutual friends. It was one of those weekends, to put it mildly. So I'm playing catch up and uh, feeling fatigued today. I'll, uh, that's a G-rated way to put it. Yeah, I mean, this is you're usually in my shoes right now. Exactly. You know, you're traveling the world and the roles are reversed here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was also traveling and I also played golf on Friday. Um, but I was down in Baton Rouge um, for an engagement party that turned into a wedding. Uh, yeah, so the, let's um, talk about this for a second. Yeah, That's the first well, I've heard of such it. a thing. Um, so it's actually, I do know someone personally who's done this before, uh, actually from Baton Rouge. It's 
pretty uncommon according to the wedding planner who was also my wedding planner so when I saw her there <laughs> I knew something was a muck but uh a good friend of mine uh, had an engagement party in Baton Rouge this weekend and it turned into a surprise wedding uh there was some rumors about it happening and like you know we were kind of expecting it uh but it did happen they got married at uh you know their house uh which is a, a really really nice house so it's not like they were slumming it and like making some financial choice by any means um but it's pretty simple i mean they literally just got married in the backyard we were all there um they were planning on doing it in Park City, so I'm super happy that I don't have to pay to go to that, despite how fun that probably could have been. Um, they've been planning for six months, so it's like not it was not a surprise to any of the families. I mean, I think they even did a rehearsal uh, last night, or I guess that was Thursday night before the Friday event. Uh, it was pretty cool, honestly. I mean, it was very simple. It was nice. You know, they ended up bringing out a stage and had a band and a whole reception at the house after. So really, it was just packing it all into one weekend, which I can respect. It makes it easier on everybody else involved that has to travel around for all these things. And on themselves. I mean, as someone you just got married, I'm in the process of planning a wedding, which I always kind of smirk at that notion. I don't really have any say in anything, but I'm, uh, you know, abreast of the situation. And, you know, I'm not always removed from the drama associated with it, even though if I'm not at the center of it, it is kind of like the people's choice. I mean, if you could go down there and knock that all out at one time, like I imagine, like you mentioned, not having to pay to go to Park City. Uh, I guess if there's a correct way to do a fall wedding, maybe we did finally discover one. Maybe that's the revelation on this podcast. But I do respect the move. I, I As soon as you said that, it kind of took me aback for a second. And then I like, processed it. And I was like, I actually don't hate this at all. I actually kind of enjoy this move. Yeah, you kind of, they were talked about, I saw them the next day, of course. And they were like, you know, we had to like, kind of emphasize this party to a lot of people from out of town be like hey like we'd really like for you to be there or like you know it's going to be really fun and like you know she wouldn't plan her bachelorette trip so like my wife who is was going to be a part of the wedding of course she was not because you know they did it by surprise uh was like what the hell is going on here like you know we're trying to plan all this and she's like no after the engagement party so there were some clues going on into it uh, but no, I actually really liked it, really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. You know, it was kind of a surprise. Some people had some inklings, uh, but it was pretty cool. It was a Friday night, so everyone could do what they want to do on Saturday. You know, they had like a little tailgate reception in, in and in at a house uh, the next day. Of course, I was like, I ain't going. I've got to go watch Ole Miss Alabama. I want to be at, at my tailgate sitting in a chair with the beer when that kicks off. Uh, but it was a pretty solid idea and it was uh, incredibly well executed, which I can imagine, you know, in some cases, if you put it all together in you know a week or two to make it a real surprise, probably wouldn't go the same way. There's no great harmonious transition out of there, but let's just go to a less harmonious occasion on Saturday in uh, Tuscaloosa. That's what we in the Big J business call a tease. Ole Miss loses to Alabama 24 to 10. This is, uh, as we recorded this and have definitely we've had a couple of days to digest it, right? With Kiffin now doing this Sunday media availability, it, like Monday is now all LSU, LSU which kind of puts it, or next opponent, I should say, which kind of puts us in like a precarious spot in terms of like discussing it. And I guess I only mean that in the sense of like, it did happen. We've had a couple of days to process it. This was a fascinating game in it for a number of different reasons because, and I guess we'll start there. Alabama felt beatable, as beatable as they've been since I mean, honestly, most of us, like meet people you and my age watching college football, I know like junior high was kind of when the Saban era hit its height. Other than us just being kids, for the last decade and a half, has there been an Alabama team that felt this gettable? This felt different. And Ole Miss playing in Tuscaloosa, 
with a not lot of new pieces coming back on offense, was not able to capitalize. And I just feel like there's so many different directions or layers you could kind of dive into with this game. But the overarching thought that I had, and I think we talked about this a little bit on our last Sunday show as we entered the week, it just felt like a big missed opportunity for Ole Miss. Not the end of the world, but certainly a missed opportunity and one given the team, the opponent, the helmet, and the way the head coach treats this game versus other ones, it felt like an even bigger missed opportunity, and that's probably why it stings a bit more. That's my 10,000-foot view of this. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's really two ways to kind of dissect what happened at this game, and the first would be what happened the week leading up to it, and then the second part would be the actual game. Um, and those two very much go hand-in-hand, hand, as we've seen that really the past four years uh, with this team and this game on the schedule, uh, missed opportunity is the word going around with literally everyone you'll talk to. Because, I mean, I'm going to be pretty frank. This Alabama team's not very good. I mean, yes, defensively, they obviously have athletes and they obviously have a very good front seven with some talented DBs that have not really meshed well together uh, with teams that could take advantage. But offensively, I mean, I was listening to some radio today, you know, listening to some Baton Rouge people getting kind of getting ready for the Ole Miss game, LSU, and kind of listening to what they had to say about the game. And one of the guys was going on there and was like, look, I, and this might be a hot take, but there's a real case where, like, Jalen Milrow is the worst quarterback in the SEC. Ooh. Yeah, that was his take. And, I, you know, I had to sit there and think about it, and I was like, that's probably a little hyperbolic for my taste. But if you just look at his ability, I mean, you take away the run, which, I mean, for all intents and purposes, Ole Miss did. He's just not very effective in any other way, shape, or form except for absolute bombs. And honestly, the one bomb he hit wasn't a good throw. It was just an incredible play by Burton down the middle of the field. So you just had an incredible opportunity against an absolutely – wounded Alabama offense. Their offensive line is bad. I mean, Ole Miss was getting real pressure. Yeah, they ran the ball pretty effectively, but it wasn't like they were gashing Ole Miss for these 15, 10-yard runs like in 2021. Two and a half yards for rush, all things considered, by the way. Yeah, in 2021, they gave – Sorry, three yards of rush. Of course. Uh, But they gave the ball to Brian Robinson like 10 times in a row in that first drive in 2021 and just gashed Ole Miss every single time. And you just knew what day it was going to be. Today, they didn't do that. Uh, Milrow didn't kill them with his legs. Yeah, of course, he's going to get his eventually. Um, he was efficient throwing the ball intermediately, kind of. I mean, I think he finished like 17 of 22 or something. But, you know, that's what you do. You kind of keep the playmakers in front of you, and that's fine. Uh, the difference in the game offensively for them was two big shot plays. That was it. That was literally it. Um and Ole Miss just couldn't make him pay. I mean, if you had told me going into this game that Alabama was going to score 24 points, my response would be, well, Ole Miss is going to win that football game. And that absolutely was not the case. So I don't know if you want to go into what happened the week leading up and what that means for this game, or if you just want to go through game flow and talk about what exactly happened on Saturday. I don't care which way you go about it, but there's definitely two different conversations there. Let's go both. And I want to kind of get to what happened the week leading up towards the game. But while I while it's kind of fresh on my mind, circle back to what happened, like a general thought during the game or after the game, I should say, 
your point about like Alabama didn't do anything demonstratively well, where it's like, okay, Ole Miss just wasn't good enough in this department. And I'm thinking mostly defensive on the defensive side of the football, because that's been the issue for most years when Ole Miss has played Alabama, rightfully so. Talent mismatch, Ole Miss has struggled for most of the last half decade plus defensively. Uh, you're right. Alabama, it wasn't a Jalen Milrow in this offense figured it out after a weird game at South Florida. That wasn't the case at all. Alabama rushes for 2.9 yards a carry. I would say the one thing that's seemingly becoming a little bit of a common thread, Alabama more than 50% success rate on third down, 6 of 13. Man, this MIS education is not paying off. I thought that said 7 of 13, slightly less than 50%, but you still get the point. They struggled a little bit to get off the field once again on third down, kind of happened the last couple of weeks. But outside of that, I mean, they were within 44, 45 yards of each other on the ground, Ole Miss offensively, which is really the real storyline is, struggled rushing the football. But to kind of put a bow on your point about, like, this didn't feel like other games where it's like, okay, Ole Miss just wasn't good enough in this department, particularly on the defensive side of the football, or Alabama had better playmakers on the other side. That just didn't really happen. It was a couple of long balls. One of them wasn't even a good throw. And that kind of leads me into the week leading up to the game. Lane Kiffin makes this game different every year, and you can – just blindly criticizing for it. You can say, that's awesome. I love him poking the bear. And that means he has higher expectations. I probably fall somewhere in the middle, but I'm just not sure at the end of the day, if it's a good thing for the head coach who generally in the sport, if you're talking to the profile of like a college football coach or just a football coach in general, even killed balance doesn't get too up or too high. This is clearly different for them uh, in this game than it was in other ones. And Kiffin continues to do this every year. And I mean, you can take this any way you want this, but it, it leads to a larger decline and larger disappointment, I guess, for the lack of a better phrase. If you hype this up and put this game on this much of a pedestal and then you lose it for the fourth year in a row and it feels like the most winnable version, naturally the fan reaction, which is kind of the heartbeat of a program in a lot of senses, is going to feel a hell of a lot worse than the fact that Ole Miss just missed some opportunities and lost a road game in the SEC. Absolutely. And it was it was all manufactured by him. And that's what right. I this mean, was not a two sided affair. No, absolutely not. I mean, we talked about the the planted question or whatever was going on with this defensive coordinator thing, which to this day, just I won't be that guy, but it was planted. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, I, that's not really for me to say. I don't really understand how media works in that sense. But it was just one of the most bizarre things you'll ever see a coach say truly that I can remember about an opposing team saying that they've made a change at coordinator. So it starts with that on Sunday night. It just keeps going and going and going. And it's all. And real quick, the Sunday night piece of it is interesting to me because he starts a new meet availability the week of this game where he starts doing it on Sunday where people even connected, I say connected to the program. The at more than the average Joe fans like, wait, what do you even mean? Why is he talking today? So like that part's new, and I feel like that perpetuator of it. Sorry, I derailed you. Continue. No, that's fine. I mean, we'll go to this this tweet by Peter Burns that I'm sure some people have seen, um, but I think it bears discussing again because it really is the perfect summation of what this has become. And I'll just I'm just going to read it verbatim. Sorry, third straight year Ole Miss has had the team to beat Bama. Third straight year. Lane pokes the goat on the game week for social media buzz. Third straight year, Bama beats Ole Miss. When you put Bama on a pedestal, not only does your team feel it, which I think is an important point here, but so does Alabama. Has to be time for a new approach. I just don't see anything wrong with any of that. I think it is all true. 
It is all fair. It's not even clowning Ole Miss or Lane. It's just, it's just the facts of what's going on in this game. And when you hear Dart and Saunders and some guys after the game talk about, like, yeah, like we felt like this was our year to get there. Right. That means it's been going around the building that it's almost, I don't really think it's like an overconfidence. It's almost like the opposite, which is hard to say. It's almost like they're overrating this game. A very general way to put it, psyching yourselves out. Uh, exactly. I mean, that's exactly the way to put it. Um, I, I heard Neil say this. Maybe it was the post game. Maybe it was today that like it actually might be a really good thing, not just because Alabama is Alabama, but that this game is not on the schedule next year. You just aren't going to have this game moving forward annually, at least it seems. Uh, but I guess we'll talk about it coming this week. You are going to have LSU on the schedule almost certainly every year, depending on how that works out with the, the SEC. I'm pretty sure they're going to end up playing. And it's not like they're going away anytime soon either. So it's just, it's just crazy what this game has become. It's just really a missed opportunity. I'll say it again. This Bama team is just wildly okay. Truly wildly okay. This is not a sport anymore where you win with dominant defense. You have to win with really good offense. Bama doesn't have a really good offense. And, the, yeah, they do have a really good defense. But we've come become accustomed to thinking that Ole Miss has been this dynamic offensive team where really we have a pretty decent sample size of the last six games or so of this team actually not being very dynamic on offense. I mean, the end of 2021, the defense – kind of helped that team get to where they got ended up in the Sugar Bowl after the Alabama game last year, the second halves all of last year. Offensively, it's just been a struggle. I don't really know where to go with that, but it came up again in the biggest game of the year. You talked the most shit. You've maybe talked your entire time at Ole Miss and then came up with maybe the biggest egg of his coaching career, at least on the offensive side of the ball, and that's his baby. And I and we can talk about Charlie if you want to, but at the end of the day, I just that seems like a cop out for what has gone on this week and what happened on Saturday. And when you talk about Alabama being, you know, aggressively average team, one of the things that I was playing catch up on was early lines next week that stuck out. Alabama goes to Mississippi State next week in Starkville, and even like your, I would say from Saban standards, slightly above our average Alabama team. They just destroy Mississippi State. I don't know what the reason is every year. Alabama's a 14-point favorite and opened as a 14-point favorite against Mississippi State two weeks after one of the worst offensive performances I've ever seen by an SEC football team in the last couple of years. I think that underscores your point better than anything. And, you know, and not to beat a dead horse about the missed opportunity, but that's that's the reason it felt this way. And I think the, you know, the high of the social media kind of poking of the bear versus the low of a very disappointing performance, largely because of the side of the football that Lane Kiffin is known for, is I think the reason you're seeing the reaction to the result of this game versus in past years, where if it, like last year it felt like just genuine disappointment, where it was like, damn, that was right there, but they couldn't quite do it. They ran out of gas, you know. I guess if there's one way to nitpick Burns' tweet, which I thought was a great point. I had not seen that. I'm very glad you read that. I've got to give him a pat on the back for that one. Um, 2021, did they actually have the team? That became a game where they couldn't block them. But that's that's picking nits, for the lack of a better phrase. But to your point, it became that's the first game where it became like, oh, boy, like, here we go. And when you put them on a pedestal, like Alabama just kind of brings out the best in itself. And the most vulnerable vulnerable version of them brought out the best in itself. Because I just don't know how good this team can be 
where I was like, man, Alabama played really well for what I thought they could be in this game. And that might underscore the point better than anything else. They didn't do anything particularly awesome, but I was like, man, for them, from what I'd seen, that was a pretty good game by them. They were fucking awful in the first half, Alabama. I mean, they were absolutely terrible offensively in the first half. I mean, they blocked that punt that goes out in the one and they lose 22 yards. I mean, it was. You don't see that either from like good teams, but much less saving teams. It's like, what the hell is happening here? No, awful, awful, awful. And you couldn't take advantage of it. And that's like the, that's what's so frustrating. I mean, of course you missed the field goal, but like, you know, it's a field goal. Like you're still in a one possession game. That's not the end of the world, but they were opportunities for plays to be made. And we'll, we'll talk about how they played on offense, but dart, not his best game, not the reason they lost, but rewatching the game. I mean, there were throws that were there. Now there weren't many of them. And we'll talk, I mean, the receivers and the offensive skill talent and the inability to run the ball. I mean, all, combined together is just not impressive at the moment uh but he wasn't his best his pocket presence was really really bad and I understand this offensive line is not great uh, and that's probably being kind but they actually weren't horrific pass blocking not as bad as they have been at least against like Georgia Tech and Tulane uh they still cannot run the ball and that's just been obvious um but they had some opportunities to take advantage of this situation. They kicked the ball out of bounds twice. You had the ball in the 35-yard line to start two drives and really didn't do anything with it. Um, And then, of course, you know, eventually when you keep going three and out and three and out and three and out, not sustaining drives, your defense is out there. They've been playing their ass off. But as you can see, you get a little tired, a little beat down. You keep going and going. You throw an interception. And then eventually the dam will break. And that's exactly what happened in the second half. Absolutely. And the very last thing on the pregame portion of it, and something you said in that answer made me think of this, and I don't want to belabor the point too long, but, uh, you know, as I'm teeing off on two at Diamond Head Cardinal course on Saturday morning, I get a text from uh, a buddy who was like, what's up with this Chris Lowe tweet? And I was like, I don't know what's up with that. And he, again, this is seemingly Lane Kiffin's least believable strategy, but latest one of the 40 chess he tries to play chris Lowe again i know we talked about it ad nauseum but you got to remember like you know half the people probably not listening you know every single day not on the plane with kiffin uh when he got off his closest friend or confidant or whatever you want to call it in media was there in 2019 when he gets hired well saturday morning you see a text uh, excuse me you see a tweet from chris Lowe that basically as i lose it and can't find it is that Ole Miss, Zachary Franklin, Caden Priestcorn are all, quote, doubtful to play in the game on Saturday. And it's the second week in a row. They did it with Judkins last week, where I would say this is the, the one time out of the two I took the bait where I was like, damn, I guess Judkins isn't playing. Chris Lowe, clearly you know who it's coming from. But it was wide receivers Trey Harris, Zachary Franklin, and Caden Priestcorn are doubtful versus Alabama. All three practiced some this week. If they're able to play, it'll be on a limited basis. We could spend half an hour just, uh, deciphering what the hell that actually means. But right. it was – Back in the day, and by, by back in the day, I mean maybe like two, three years ago, or maybe even still now in every other instance, when a national guy goes and gets something injury news the day of a game, you're like, okay, they know something the local guys don't know. 
And I'm not big into reading into social media to make any sort of concrete determinations. But if you look at any reaction to that tweet, every single person amongst Ole Miss fan base is like, not true. You're getting played, pal. Like, when has that ever happened? Ever? And I'm not going to throw myself into this discussion more so than anything. But I can say with uh, one of those three players, I knew immediately. I was like, this is not accurate. It's just not. And on the heels of the Judkins thing last week, it was like, okay, maybe this is a new strategy by him. We don't have to get into why he's doing this day of a game. We don't have to get into why he's using a guy in the national media that seemingly likes him as a pawn. That's a conversation for another day. I guess the why piece of it that I'd like to ask you before we get onto some of the pieces of the game is what is the point of that? Why is it believable? Why start doing this now? And then with the whole Bama week and everyone's reading into Kiffin's intentions and social media stuff, that part is just confusing to me because I don't think anyone at Alabama looked at it and thought, mm, they're going to be out three guys. No, exactly. It, it makes no difference in what's going to happen on the field. And I, I know they've been waiting for these three guys to get back and healthy. And they you know, thought it was going to be the case this week, but having playing games on social media where you know their team is not looking at Chris Lowe tweets, you know, 45 minutes before kickoff, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's just another, you know, kind of bullet point on how he's treated this game. And he's in his, just in his own head because it's only coming from him. It's not like he's having Tom Luke go talk to Chris Lowe for him. I mean, it's all coming from him and it's just why. I, do, I have no answer for it. And, you know, when you have two weeks from it, you literally look at the comments on the Chris Lowe tweet, like you said, every single of his fans, like, this is just isn't true. Like, we know this is bullshit. Like, why is this happening? Made me I think we got a lot of subs out there. I was like, hell yeah, yeah. I'm proud of the Rebel Grove fam over here. <laughs> yeah, Brian Scoops Rippy. Is, is yeah, exactly. I mean, we're just rebranding, marketing, not my thing anymore. I'm just scooping folks. So I don't know. And then, of course, like, you know, partially it was – yeah, I mean, it wasn't true because they all three played, but one Trey third Hansen. of it was kind of true because Harris didn't do much of anything. Yeah, but that was, was the whole like, thing going into the week. If there's one guy to three, you're like, oh, I'm not sure if he's playing like that was the guy. Yeah. I mean, and then, but of course, time. you listen to Kiffin's press conference today, and he's like, oh, Aiden Williams has actually been sick for a while. And everyone's like, what the hell? <laughs> Where did that come from? Why did that? Why did that? Where did that come from? from? Like, we haven't heard, no one has even had a sniff of this, but everyone knows what's going on with the other three players. So, it doesn't make any sense. He's playing games. I mean, in the NFL, we talk about pro mindset. Like, you get fined for that shit if you lie. Literally about. not legal. You're not, I mean, from an NFL like, rule standpoint, not yeah. the law, that you're not allowed to do that. You are not allowed to do that. I know that, like, that obviously has no bearing on college football and how this works, but, like, we do talk about the pro He's mindset all the time. And then, you know, this entire week, this entire game, and this entire series since he's been here, is there's been no pro mindset playing against Alabama. So, I mean, I don't – it doesn't really make that big of a difference, but it's just another look in this, uh, inside how they've treated this game, and it's just bizarre, to say the least. We'll get back to Weldon in just a second, but before we do, I wanted to take a quick break to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by Twisted Tea. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted Tea, your go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted Tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've had before. It is made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted Tea turns up on any occasion, especially when you're cheering on your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted Tea is there to elevate your game day experience. It perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments. So let's toast to unfor an unforgettable game day experience. 
Twisted Tea, the drink that feels fun and celebrates your love for college football. Keep it twisted. This podcast is also brought to you by AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I gave AG1 a try because I'm not always the best about eating healthy and I knew my body needed something to fuel it better and give it the nutrients that it needs. And AG1 is great. I take it every day. It has definitely made a difference. You should try it too as well. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to AG, go to drinkag1.com slash mpw. That's drinkag1 slash mpw to check it out today. All right, back to Weldon Rodenberg. And to finally get into it offensively, it this is why this one probably feels more significant than the other Alabama matchups. Ole Miss had 300 net total yards of offense. They ran the ball for 56 yards net. Granted, they did have like 40-something sack-adjusted yards, but still nothing to write home about either way. And that's been the bread and butter of the Lane Kiffin offense really since the time – uh, he's gotten to Ole Miss. I mean, we always joke about the fact that it's like, what's the next TV announcer is going to be like, you think about airing it out with Lane Kiffin. It's like, I, this guy hasn't watched anything. Their, their bread and butter is missing. And I think that's affecting a large part of what they do offensively. I mean, I, I, I had a bunch of friends I was watching the game with at a house after we got done playing Saturday morning. And, you know, they're Ole Miss fans. They keep up with it, but they're, they're looking at me being like, what's up with the jet sweeps? Why were we going sideways? I'm like, I, Man, I couldn't tell you. I'm not in on those meetings or I'm not in on the game plan or any of that, but like I did notice the same thing. It is very clear that the lack of a confidence in the running game, which is, in fairness, we'll get to the Judkins piece of it in a second, starting with the offensive line, because I don't think Judkins is just a drastically different player now. The reason that this team is struggling, and it's very clear that they can't run the football from a game planning or a play calling standpoint, hell, and even on script standpoint, it's it's kind of lessened their potency. What's the greatest asset Kiffin's had since he's been a head coach here? In my opinion, it's the fact that they literally score a touchdown on like, I'm going to look this up one day, like 80% of their on script drives in the first drive of the game. It's kind of lessened the potency of that. And so that to me makes it clear that unless they find a running game, this is going to be tough sledding for them offensively. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I can give you an idea of why they did all those jet sweeps. Cause if you go back and watch the Texas game, uh, they were just throwing it these kind of bubble screens, these kind of yeah. running back screens, these jet screens almost on every first or second down. The difference is Texas is throwing it with Quinn Ewers and, you know, Xavier worthy and we're giving it to Dayton Wade and we don't have the guys blocking on the edge. Really it has been a big problem with, you know, trying to get sideline to sideline. It's not necessarily even team speed, but they're just not getting any of these safeties. They're not getting any push downfield on the outside or the inside. So I understand why they were trying it. Uh, it just did not work at all. Um, running the ball wise, it's just been a struggle. Uh, but they didn't even, unlike the two lane game and what he said after that game, where he's like, you know, we're going to have to almost force the run because it's what we do. They I feel like they didn't force- try as much. No, they did not at all. And this is the third massive game in a row between Alabama last year, LSU last year, and Alabama this year, where they've almost abandoned the run. And not they didn't really abandon it, but it felt like for the first few drives of all three of those games, it was air it out, air it out, air it out, air it out, and then like maybe catch them with a run after first down. But the issue is just they just don't have the playmakers that are getting open to do that. When you watch the Texas game, yeah, they're going sideline, 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 and then they're ripping it deep. 
but they've got dudes that could get out. I mean, Adnan Mitchell and Worthy and Sanders that tied in were just like, I mean, those are real dudes that were absolutely torching Alabama. Ole Miss could not do it. Um, I mean, they don't have anything over the middle of the field that's been talked about plenty. They're really playing their three top guys that we assume were going to be their three top guys are all kind of injured. And they're still out there proving that there's just not the depth we had. I mean, Wade and Watkins were still the most effective guys again on Saturday. And we've said, I thought both of them did exactly what we talked about for two to three weeks. They were what they were. It just wasn't enough. Absolutely. And that's like, we say it every single time. It's not a knock on them. They are doing what they can do and they are making plays here and there, but it's just not going to be enough against a team that has the athletes Alabama does. Um, So the offense is just, it's kind of gotten stale um, and it's kind of been that way for a little bit. Uh, they are absolutely front runners on offense. If they don't get a productive first down, or they are just in real trouble, um, which has really been effective this year because they've had so many holding penalties and procedure penalties. I mean, on that first drive when they had that illegal shift because Dart snapped the ball too quick, it's just like five yards is just killing this team right now because they're incapable of running the ball in second and long and even getting back to the sticks right now. So it's just, I don't, you can't reshape your offense in a week or two. It just doesn't happen. I mean, Alabama, they didn't reshape their offense. I mean, they did exactly what they've been doing. They've run the ball a ton. They maybe got Milrow going with his legs a little bit, but it was basically the same thing. I mean, we talked about, they were always going to try to get Milrow to run the ball more and they're just going to smash it down your throat nothing changed from them. And I don't really think you're going to be able to see Ole Miss change dramatically what they're doing on offense, but they're going to have to figure out something in the run game. I I don't even know what it's going to be. I'm not an offensive guru, but there has to be some sort of change they can make, whether that's on the personnel side or just on the play calling side to get something figured out. I'll throw just a a broad theory at you because again, this is the area I'm always most like – tepid in in terms of like criticism or just analysis because i don't know the first damn thing about scheming for a game and play calling but i just wonder if a portion of it is a lack of patience you know Ole Miss has been an offense that for a lot of times that's had the most success uh going tempo particularly early in the lane kiffin era and they haven't had the explosive Ely run on second and 20, even when they're behind the sticks. Or Judkins has not gotten loose this year for a 55-yarder, let alone once, but like, you know, five times like it happened in seemingly every four or five weeks last year. And the reason I bring this up is Judkins carried the football 13 times for 56 yards. Is that anything to write home about? No, of course not. But that's 4.3 yards a carry. And there were moments in the game where Alabama seemingly, whether it was intentional on offense or just the way the game was going defensively, it's like, okay, this game just might need to be played at a little bit of a slower pace, even if you're a tempo offense trying to dictate tempo. And I just felt like there were moments in the game where Judkins would have an interior run where it didn't look anything fancy, but he'd fall forward for four or five. And it like they weren't patient enough to kind of methodically do that. And I wonder if that's going to be an adjustment as they try to figure out this running game to be a different type of running game to where it's like, guys, it's not the kid hitting you for 60 every, you know, eighth or ninth time or 10th time he gets the football, just a little bit slower and methodical. And you can find ways to go quicker without going quicker in other ways. It was just something I thought of because I didn't look at this game like Tulane and think, man, they can't run the ball. I thought, why don't they stick with it was my overarching thought. 
No, absolutely. Especially when it turned into kind of a game flow of a really defensive matchup. Right. Going three and out is going to kill you eventually. And they did it three times in a row again against uh, Bama on Saturday. Did not take advantage of what was a just an atrocious first half offensively for Bama. I've said it for three weeks now, and I can't talk to the attitude of Judkins, his NIL, if he's unhappy, blah, 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 blah. That's all speculation. I don't think this kid looks any different than he did last year. I, I know I know people saying, like, oh, he's bigger and slower and less explosive, and I just don't see it. I mean, you saw runs today. If he gets a gap, he's going for 10 yards, and he got two gaps yesterday or Saturday – and he went for 10 and 13. I mean, he broke three tackles from Alabama side when we were deep in their own territory and went for 12. It's like, yeah, that's the Judkins we know. They just didn't go there very often. Um, they've been terrible on third down. Uh, it's It's been a, a theme with this team going back to last year where third down has just been awful. And I know maybe they're chalking it up to just trying to set up for fourth down or something, but – this team just doesn't get going if you don't get the first down on the possession. I mean, it's it's been really, really rough. When they get that first first down, they've actually been really good because then they can get in their flow. They can go fast, and then now you got to keep Bam on their heels or whoever you're playing on their heels. Uh, but there's just been way, way, way too many wasted plays, wasted third downs, wasted misreads by Dart, wasted blocks by the offensive line. I don't, I don't think Judkins is some completely different player than last year. I just think – they just have not been getting a push for him. When he hits a hole and hits a gap, it's there. But he just hasn't had many of those to hit. So I don't know if it's a, you know, get him outside a little bit or or what, but the it's just not been very good. No, it hasn't. And that kind of lends itself to this. Maybe I'm trying to speak something into existence that doesn't exist, but the whole you mentioned all right, if they get that first down, they're fine. Well, you usually in like the past three years of Lane given offense, it's like, all right, how they can they hit them for another chunk play? Whereas, like with the state of this offensive line and the state of the running game, not necessarily breaking huge runs that often, like should you reevaluate what that second and five or second and six means? That just means, hey, okay, now we can get going in this sucker instead of just go as quickly as humanly possible and try to hit him for 19 or 20 on a sweep or something like that the next play. I just almost wonder if after this game they'll try to recalculate what a significant gain on first down means to them versus in years past. Right, because, man, if you start going three and out two or three or four times against LSU this upcoming weekend, they are going to blitzkrieg you because they may start slow and they did on Saturday, but when they get going, I mean, they scored on six straight possession against Arkansas, all of drives longer than 60 yards. I mean, they, they will fuck you up if you give them multiple opportunities as a healthy offense to get going. Um, so then, you know, they have to sustain some possessions. I mean, they have to get some playmakers to make some plays, too. I mean, Skari Franklin is out in the field for over 50 snaps with one reception. I mean, I don't know if that's a read thing or if that's just a simplification of the offense where he's not really a part of it, but that seems crazy to me. I mean, that at least lends me to believe that he was pretty healthy and was just a complete non-factor. Priest Quorum was there early on that, that one throw, kind of a dump down where he got 20 or 30 yards don't even remember seeing him for the rest of the game. And then, you know, that's to say I was looking for that one for, I would say about until an, like an hour and a half before the game on, that was a part to get him involved early, but th- to your point, they both got involved a little bit early and nothing happened after that. They were great on script and nothing happened after that. 
nothing happened after that. Uh, I mean, we can talk about darts play. Pocket presence leaves a lot to be desired. I know this offensive line is not very good, and he probably feels like he is under pressure every single snap, kind of like what Derek Carr feels like for the Saints right now. Uh, but he he wasn't finding the rushing lanes whenever the pass protection breaks down, which is something he's been really good at uh, all of last year and even earlier this season. Um, I remember in the, the second possession uh, on second down, he runs himself completely out of the pocket and just throws the ball away, where if he just looks left, he's got like 20 yards of running room, but he just immediately looks right, flushes himself out, and then misses a, misses a throw and doesn't really do anything with it. He was pretty – I mean, I think he only had like six rushing yards in this game. Uh, that just can't happen for this team. Uh, I mean, he didn't have to have some sort of Tennessee Matt Corral moment, but that was absolutely killer. Um, also on that second possession, they did that kind of fake toss out to Bentley – I mean, sorry, out to Judkins with Bentley running on a wheel route – Dart misses him. He throws it out to the outside to Watkins, who's covered when Bentley is ripping up the seam. If he puts it on him, he's going to score a touchdown. Uh, I think two or three possessions later, it's third down. They're on like the 45-yard line. Judkins goes outside on kind of like a flat route, and he tries to rip the ball into Watkins. It ends up being incomplete, or Judkins was wide open for a first down. There were some plays to be made out there on his part, whether it's with his legs or with his feet. I mean – not to mention overthrowing Watkins for a pretty wide-open touchdown. I know there was three minutes left, but guess what? You're in a one-possession game. I was about to say, yeah, crazier things have happened. Crazier things have happened. So he was not the reason they lost the game, but in these kinds of games, he's got to be damn near perfect to beat really good defenses and really good teams, and he was just not – he was not that. I mean, the interception also was just – I get impatient or whatever, but that's just unacceptable. I mean, it's a backbreaker. I mean, you finally actually got a first down on that possession, and you just rip one on a shot play to Dayton Wade. There's three guys back there. He basically fair caught it. And then not to mention returns it another 30 yards, put them in better position to score, which they did on that drive. He's got to be better. I know he has not been bad this year, but he also has not necessarily proved that he can take over a game if everything else isn't working either. There's seemingly been a hesitancy to uh, to criticize Jackson Dart because I think a little bit in part, one, I think he seems like a good kid. I think people like his story. I think given who he replaced, like from a, like a fan base or, I mean, sometimes we're guilty of it media wise of like, hey, there's not actually that big of a drop off between him and Corral. But it's been fascinating to me to watch for over a season now that Corral one was incredible throwing the deep ball. He made the right decision almost at all times. And he never that that 2021 corral, that second year in that Kiffin offense, he never really missed a whole lot. I mean, that don't get me wrong. There were a handful of throws throughout the course of a game where it's like, ah, okay, but man, not a whole lot of them. And Dart is just not that kind of quarterback. And if you want to say he's not Matt Corral, that's you know far from just an absolute indictment on the kid as a college quarterback. But I feel like there's been a lot of that through a season and a half now or almost a season and a half with Jackson Dart to where I guess the way I'd pose it to you is what do you think Jackson Dart does best? What do you think are the two things he does best? Because I swear I have a follow-up to this that will make it make a little more sense. I say two things. What do you think he does best as a quarterback? I think he's made better decisions this year. I think he's pretty good with his legs. Uh, I think he's pretty good – 
He's been better on intermediate throws. Actually, across the middle, he's been decent, even though they don't do it very often. Right. It's kind of a lot of average to above average. I don't know what he does the best. I, I'm trying to literally think of it in in. And I didn't time. mean to put you on the spot. I don't mean like elite level, just out of what he does as a quarterback, just like best traits, not compared to anyone else, not compared to anything else. I think you kind of nailed it with the intermediate throws, better decision making, and is a pretty good runner. That's that's about it. I mean, I don't know if there's something about his game that he has like this super, super strength to it. And that's not like an indictment that thinking he's a bad quarterback or anything, but we've seen he he hasn't really had a game against like a really good football team where it's like, damn, they won that game just, because of him. It was just he was just exceptional and rode him to a win. He hasn't really had it. And like I said, I like this kid. I think he's a pretty good player. But he's definitely not – he's not a top five SEC quarterback right now. I mean, he's not bottom five either. Uh, but like I said, in a game like this where a lot of things aren't working – and look, he does not have a lot of help right now. That is an absolute factor in this. The run game is almost non-existent. The receivers are all injured and all, or just not there, basically. I mean, we can talk – Williams isn't there. Knox isn't there. Trey Harris barely – play. I mean, so there's issues there, but – it's still like it's still not gonna get you there. Like, basically. I, I guess my point in that is if you have a quarterback who is not similar to your last quarterback in terms of taking the top off the defense, really just being an elite college quarterback for a year, is that too strong of a word to use for 2021 Corral? I mean, whatever you thought of him the first two years, he was pretty damn good that one last year. No, he was incredible. He was, so, he was unbelievably good. If you have a quarterback that is not as good with deep ball wise, well, I mean, what do you do? Do you go find another one or do you think, okay, this kid is somewhat like this kid's pretty solid all around. But to your point, it's like, I don't know what he does. Awesome. Is that a way? Like, I guess as we get into year two now of dart and the running game struggling again, I get, I get back to my general theme. Does that change the way you think of how this offense should work? Or is it a personnel thing where it's like, we have to have a kid that's a home run hitter at running back and one at quarterback, or is this just not a thing? I'm not sure. I really don't have a great answer for that. Um, I mean, it lends you to believe that they brought in Spencer Sanders. To right. For the possibility. For the possibility that that would be what they could use is throwing the deep ball and having a more, you know, explosive attack. And, you know, I mean, Dart has hit deep balls this year. That actually, I mean, he's been much better at it when it's been called. You saw some against Tulane in the opening drive, Georgia Tech, the long ball to Watkins. He's had some ones to Wade. Um, look, like I said, he has not had a whole lot of help on the outside, but he's also missed some reads that have been I mean, like, it's like when you, when they're there, you got to hit them. Right. Especially with this team that's had the personal issues it has the offensive line, the running game. Um, he didn't do it on Saturday and look, it wasn't all his fault. I can't, cannot reiterate that enough, but he's going to have to be exceptional against LSU. And we're going to talk about it more. I'm sure forecasting that game, but there's one weakness to LSU. Their DBs, shockingly enough, are really, really bad. Arkansas killed them on Saturday. And my biggest concern in this matchup is I don't know if Dart and these receivers have the ability to expose that. That's going to be the big question going into this game. And maybe when these guys are healthier, that Williams is back, that things change there. Uh, but they didn't do it against Alabama. And, and I'll tell you what, this LSU front seven is just as good, if not better, than theirs. We'll get back to Walden in just a second, but before we do, I want to take a quick break to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by Caldera. 
Fall is here, gentlemen, and it's about to get busy during the holidays. Don't let that stop you from sticking to your habits and being the best version of yourself. That's where our friends at Caldera Lab come in. These guys are the best in the skincare game with an easy routine, keeping your face looking pretty no matter your schedule. Plus, what's a better gift than clear skin? Join the other 100,000 men who trust Caldera Lab to show your best self and first impression this fall. Plus, it's a great gift. Caldera Lab is the leader in men's skin care made only with top-tier ingredients and clinical trials have found 94% of men's skin showed an overall younger-looking experience after using Caldera Lab for a few weeks. And just for your audience, we have an exclusive deal. You're not beating this offer. Use promo code MPW at calderalab.com for 20% off right now. That is promo code MPW for 20% off Caldera Lab right now. Check them out. This podcast is also brought to you by HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get warm, fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's a number, America's number one meal kit. Kickstart a fresh fall routine with HelloFresh. HelloFresh handles all meal planning and shopping to deliver everything you need to cook up a tasty meal right at home. They do the hard part and you get to take the credit. When it comes to options, honestly, more is more. That's why HelloFresh's menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-ons to choose from every week. HelloFresh has definitely saved the Rippy household some time. It can be tough to find good quality meals, kind of a pain in the butt to go to the grocery store, and HelloFresh has removed that problem for us. So you should try today to go to HelloFresh.com slash 50MPW. Use the promo code 50MPW for 50% off plus 15% off the next two months. Check them out today at HelloFresh.com. All right, back to Weldon. Kind of wrapping up the Alabama thoughts, you think about missed opportunities Man, Milrow made the poor decision. He wasn't completely just dynamic running the football. He got his, as you mentioned earlier. That's another frustrating part about this to where, I mean, he got to halftime. You're like, man, how is Ole Miss not up 21 to six in this football game at the very least? And man, if you come out of the locker room at 21, six, this is a different deal in a variety of aspects, because from a sheer time perspective, it doesn't allow Alabama to do what it has done for years, a worse version of it this year to lean on opponents and wear them down. And the Ole Miss defense is rotating more. I thought particularly from a front seven standpoint that snap counts at least back that up to some degree. Perfect, no, but better than it's been at any point in the Kiffin era for the last three years. But it didn't really matter because the offense didn't do enough to thwart the fact that Alabama could lean on them. And that's pretty much what happened the second half. Alabama just kind of salted that sucker away after they scored on a drive and Ole Miss never really regained the lead. And, that's the part I think that probably sticks the most in Ole Miss fans' collective side is like, man, it was right there, and they just went death by paper cut in that second half. The, uh, Alabama never had to adjust what they were doing on offense. They they were never – there was never – Which weirdly threat. is not a critique of the defense. It was just no, the way the game not. was. It is not a critique of the defense at all. It's a critique of the Ole Miss offense by not putting any pressure on them, by not you know holding the ball – by not possessing the ball, by not like forcing Alabama into a potential mistake here or there. They just were giving Ole Miss's defense a lot to work with. Um, and eventually, yeah, at some point in time when there's a turnover, when there's a blocked punt, you're, I mean, you can't lose two of the three phases of the game on the road in the SEC against a team like Alabama and expect to win. And Ole Miss lost on special teams and they lost on offense. Um, defense, I mean, like I said, if you told me they're only going to score 24 points, I would have thought Ole Miss won the game. Win this game. Absolutely. 
Um, so, I mean, we can get here and some silver linings and talk about how well the defense played because I think it's warranted. They play great. But this week is going to be very, very different challenge. It's going to be a completely different challenge for this team. And I want to hype them up and give them all the credit, but it's going to be it's going to be a different matchup. Um, so they're going to have to be prepared differently. They're going to have to come up with a new game plan. I'm pretty confident with what Golding has done so far game plan-wise. Uh, so we'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, you can't really say anything bad about them. But, damn, I mean, it's just no pressure on Alabama. No nothing for four quarters, really. And that's just – it's tough because this is just not that good of an Alabama team. Can you see – you have a much more trained eye in terms of how something works on a given play than me. The One of the things I've noticed with the Golding defense so far is, while it's far from perfect, I find myself, whether I'm watching it live or watching it the second time, I'm like, I kind of like the way he uses that guy. It's not the perfect thing. But, you know, the whole thing around Golding coming in was like, okay, he figures out what his guys do well – and he tries to kind of, you know, formulate that into an 11 person or 20 something person game plan, whatever you want to call it to accomplish that. I've noticed that a lot this year. Again, not an A plus, certainly not a C plus, probably not even a B minus or a B. I'd give him right in that B plus A minus range, depending on where you want to go. But I've been impressed with that, whether it's watching Perkins and him spying Milrow or the different ways that they've used Cedric Johnson or the kind of the the run defensive lines versus pass defensive lines to, again, a somewhat untrained eye, I've been very pleased or appreciative of the way he's used the guys to maximize their skill sets. I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's it's harder to explain in my head than it is out on a microphone, but I've just noticed that this year. No, yeah. I mean, the game plan with using Tennyson with his speed and Perkins with his athletic ability to kind of – I mean, they were spying, but sometimes they were just straight up rushing was awesome, and it worked perfectly. I mean, we talked about – last week on having to kind of force the issue and trying to be more aggressive on early downs and get tackles for loss. And they absolutely did that for sure for four quarters, really. I mean, they Alabama did not just gash them for five yards in every first down. Uh, Milrow was not, you know, nothing with his legs, but when he got outside of the pocket, DBs were playing well. They weren't getting, letting guys get behind them and then letting, you know, everyone in the front, corral around Milrow and make plays they did it perfectly for literally three and a half almost four quarters so you can't I mean he's used his personnel what he has the depth in the back and in the front almost as good as you can considering the talent on the other side of the ball um so I mean I have nothing but praise I mean I would give the game plan and the execution this game I mean an A I mean there's nothing else you can say about that they had six points at halftime at home, I know this Alabama offense sucks, but that's not the point. You know, they still run the ball. Milrow is still a dynamic. Everyone was very worried about what he was going to do potentially with his legs. And without, you know, the exception of one or two plays, I mean, he was pretty much just kind of dinking and dumping it around uh, until those two shot plays. Um, so it's hard to complain about anything you've seen there. Um, it was just a missed opportunity with the way they've played. We'll go with the big picture thought to wrap up here regarding Alabama. This has been just a fascinating, I would say, nine months for myself, this podcast. We caught a lot of shit for, like, criticizing Kiffin at all last year, and I get it. Like, fans are fans. They do what they do. I didn't feel like we were ever unfair in criticizing Kiffin, but I thought we pointed out some things that maybe poked holes in the whole pro mindset thing. Um, the fact that it was like, hey, this isn't normal, it's unconventional, some of it works, some of it doesn't. 
But I never viewed Lane Kiffin from 2020-21 on as this like infallible guy that you just you're the world's biggest asshole if you criticize him. And I felt like for a while, even after last year and the way that ended, like that was still not met very well in terms of response. This weekend felt like a shift. And I don't want to do a Lane Kiffin pylon. I will just start with the obvious. I think he's a guy that's made Ole Miss relevant. I think he's a great offensive mind. And I think for the most part, the record shows he's been a pretty damn good head coach. So with that out of the way, did this weekend feel like to you from the way you read about things to the message boards or however one of you can want to consume the temperature of the Ole Miss fan base? Did this feel like a little bit of a shifting tide in terms of how they view Kiffin? And I don't want to overreact, as I mentioned, like five times, but now seemingly people are like, okay, well, you you played this Alabama team where they only scored 24 points and your offense scored 10. This felt like a little bit of a shift. I think it's fair to say. I do think it's fair to say, and it's not unfair, and it's not really unwarranted. Uh, we've been 100%. talking about this specific game with the way the schedule worked out since the schedule came out was, yeah, they're going to beat all three of these teams beforehand. They're going to go to Alabama, and it's going to be – a game to see where this program's at. And then you, when you add on everything from Sunday night up to the Chris Lowe tweet, it was a lot. And then to come out and lay the biggest egg he's laid in potentially his coach, head coaching career. And the biggest game of his career. For in the biggest time. game. At least at Ole Miss, I should say. Yeah, yeah the, probably the biggest game in his career at Ole Miss against a – very beatable Alabama team, which honestly makes it worse. I, we said it last week, like them looking as bad as they did against South Florida was almost a bad thing because if Ole Miss did what they did on Saturday, you were going to get clowned and you were going to, you know, it was going to be pretty warranted. I don't necessarily blame Ole Miss fans for thinking that way. I think it's what makes this game, this upcoming week, even more massive. Um, a thousand percent. The, it went from like, okay, can he poke the bear and knock him off to can he actually back up what he's been saying for three years? No, exactly. And, you know, you can't take away 10 and 2. You absolutely can't. That was a really, really good year. Obviously, with the way last year ended, along with the Auburn stuff, which, you know, coming even the season before that, there was more of that with other coaching stuff. It was like, okay, there was a little fan base fatigue with, with the social media stuff and the way he's handled a lot of these things the transfer portal, some of the personnel issues in your fourth year, some of the recruiting issues in your fourth year. It was like all kind of culminating into this game against a beatable Alabama team that he puts on this pedestal and has so for every year. And I think the way the game went and the outcome of his baby being the one that lost you the game is why people are now all of a sudden like, man, what's going on here? You know, this is the offensive mastermind. This is the guy that can – do no wrong, it, it, whether it's national media or the Ole Miss fan base, it all culminates into Tuscaloosa, and it was just an absolute egg. And it's hard to get over. It's hard to overcome, and I don't think any of it's unfair. That also doesn't mean the sky is falling either because it's they there were good things from the game, um, not offensively, <laughs> but it, it's not all for loss. And, you know, recruiting has been better, but it's still – the, the signature win thing is still there and it may not be fair. And you saw people, you know, we've kind of talked about it and it's been out there. And then finally somebody from national media tweeted it and it was like, everyone else saw it too. And then when you listen to people talk about Ole Miss, 
and I listened to some of it today, it was like, yeah, this guy's pretty dominant on his opening script, but then once you adjust, it's over. That's not just an Ole Miss fan base thing now. That Everyone else has seen it too. Right. So it's nothing new, and it, it's just – LSU is a massive game. It is just so, so big for so many different reasons, not to mention what could happen if they lose with, you know, all the momentum they've talked about, the, you know, the team. Arkansas after, coming in. You still Arkansas coming in. No, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a lot. And they're going to have to play damn near perfect to do it. And it's just, I, I understand the, the frustration. It doesn't mean the sky's falling. I don't think it is either, but it's not unwarranted. No, it's not unwarranted at all. And one of the things that you made a great point on to kind of perfect way to bow end it is, or to put a bow on this piece of it, is the fact that, so Kiffin, after the Auburn thing last year, seemingly got like a little more self-aware. Like I think he maybe with the way he mentioned things in press conference throughout the offseason was like, okay, I'm at least somewhat acutely aware that there's a piece of the fan base that did not like the fact that I handled Auburn and that whole circus the way I did. He mentioned it a few times. Well, then you get to the portal thing and it's like, is this sustainable? And all of a sudden they're doing better in high school recruiting. Still a long way from the finish line. That is a podcast for another day. But hey, you know, it's a start. We weren't talking about the way they've been recruiting high school wise, really in this stage at any point since he's been he's been here. So I guess to ask it in the final sense before we get to LSU is, do you think you see a different Lane Kiffin at all in terms of this post fourth Alabama loss and the way he not conducts himself on like a daily basis, but the next big game that comes up, is there any change in Lane Kiffin at all, in your opinion? I mean, well, we'll see this week because <laughs> this is the next big game. Uh, I mean, you lose this game and everything's out, you know, things that ne- not, we didn't necessarily predict because that's not really the point. You know, we went into the season, but like, yeah, like this team, probably like an eight and four team. I could see nine and three, could see right. seven and five. But then when you put it in the context of what happened throughout the season with the SEC being what it is, this Alabama team being what it is, LSU getting their ass kicked week one, you're like, damn, are we you know, set up for this? Is this possible? Is this possible? And that happens year after year where it's like, okay, you know, here we go. And then you just add on the fact that you're adding Texas and Oklahoma. It was like, man, this is a real opportunity here. Um, and then it just absolutely collapsed on itself. Uh, and they're going to have to pick it back up. They're going to pick it back up quick. They're going to have to get healthier. Things are going to have to change. But, look, it's going to be a fascinating conversation on if they get their ass kicked on Saturday. We talked about this yeah. being the biggest game of the Kiffin era. How about the next one being the next biggest one? I mean, I don't think that's a total hyperbole, right? No, it's absolutely not. Um, it's, it is absolutely not a hyperbole. And it's at home. They've played a lot better at home. You know, you should never go against Vegas. It's a two and a half point line LSU is favored by. What would um, you have guessed that was coming out, by the way? Five? Seven. Okay, I'd have gone in that five and a half. Seven. That's fair. Right in the Vegas yeah. zone. Go to seven. Yeah, Vegas zone of we don't know what the fuck to do with it. Let's yeah, it like what, what's going on right now? Right. No, I mean, I could have seen that. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's a winnable game. Um, but like I said, if, if it goes really poorly like if it's similar to last year-esque then I think you're gonna have to start asking questions on is there is offensively are are we running a scheme that does not work anymore um personnel wise are we building this roster the way that we need to to be successful in this league um head coaching wise are we gonna have to stop this, this this social media stuff is it leading to some resentment in the fan base and look that's not necessarily something that 
determines the outcomes of games, sure. but it definitely determines, it determines the, the reaction feels afterwards and the reaction. 100%. Um, I will give Kiffin credit. It's not like he came up with a whole lot of excuses after the game. I mean, he that took, was another piece of it. This is on me. He took his punches. He didn't talk about, you know, the crowd or the, the personnel or NIL. You know, he, he put it on himself uh, to be better, which, I mean, I, I respect that. And I think it's, you know, he's not really been bad about that. He usually does, you know, take the lumps when it's deserved. But it, it just makes it so much more confusing when you go through the week that we had before this game, having it end up the way it is and just be like, well, move on to the next week. <laughs> it's like, well – it's hard to move on to the next week after what just happened. I mean, it just it just was such a microcosm of what this Lane Kiffin era for the last, you know, 10 games has been. I mean, they're they haven't beaten a power five team since Kentucky of last year. I mean AM. Uh, oh, they did beat AM. You're right. You're right. Um, but one now, power five team since. Sorry, I don't count Georgia Tech. That's not a good football team. Um, so technically, <laughs> okay, we both got that. Yes, exactly. Uh, clarify, we're not into facts. We're into narratives here. Um, but yeah, no, I, I forgot about Georgia Tech. To be completely honest. Yeah, no, that's fine. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of off. Whatever. That's not the point. The point is, it's it's just it's not fair to be like, oh, this guy's in trouble. Of course, he's not in trouble. But we live in a day-by-day college football world. I mean, you see week-by-week things change dramatically with the way people look at programs, with the looks at momentum. And right now, when it comes to, like, big matchups and the way Lane Kiffin's gone, like, they just haven't won a lot of them. And I don't think it's unfair to be like, what's going on here, especially when we saw the initial success. And then he's kind of gotten his guys in now, and it hasn't been the same. Um, so, I mean, it, it's just such a massive game this weekend. We will finish up with Weldon in just a second, but before we do, I want to take a quick break to remind you, this podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life. Unfortunately, life doesn't always come with an instruction manual. That's why BetterHelp is the world's largest online therapy service connecting over a million clients with licensed online therapists, quick, easy, and affordable you can get matched with the therapist after filling out a brief survey. You can switch therapists at any time, and you don't even have to be on camera if you don't want to. Take care of your mental health today. Go online to betterhelp.com and get 10% off your first month. Betterhelp.com slash MPW to get 10% off your first month. This podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. So the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Check them out today. Skybox is rolling with their college football and NFL picks packages. Don't be that guy that loses a bunch of money based off their own leans. Skybox is a full proven method. They'll send you a color-coded pick spreadsheet Divide it up by units, and boom, you're all of a sudden more equipped to profit than before signing up for Skybox. Make this football season a profitable one. Check it out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E, and get 20% off any picks package. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber. That's rippywrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats right now. It's three six-ounce bacon wrap fillets. For 20 bucks, that's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Go in there, show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up. Then go find all your own favorites at the most delicious butcher shop in the world. Check them out, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Weldon. 
it's massive. And I, that's actually something Kiffin talked about either Sunday or on Monday. I can't remember which one it was, but I had the note written down that I agreed with him a lot. Where he's like, you know, every time you lose a game, you want the coordinator fired. This industry is such a week to week business where, hey, if you lose, you suck. Your program's trending in the worst direction possible. And if you win, it's like, oh my God, is this the next theme to break through in the college football playoff? And that's kind of the the ecosystem that we currently reside in and why that's the case is a conversation for another day and could be, I could talk about that for hours, but it just really is the reality of the situation for Ole Miss. And I thought Kiffin was interesting. You know, we talk about this social media thing where it's like, ah, sometimes it's funny. Sometimes it's like, oh, what's he doing? And sometimes it's like, dude, stop. And hey, that might be the actual core existence of every single person's social media. That's not like some nerd reporter that only puts out scoops, but it was interesting after the game, he did like the Travis Hunter haters thing. He seemed to be on that for a few tweets. And I can't believe I'm sitting here an hour into a podcast talking about Kevin quote tweets. But then the, the real reason for it is there was like a parable taped on the walls today. I don't know if you saw this and they're talking about, you know, getting in there and competing and the man in the arena. And, you know, like if you're disappointed in your performance, like remember, like, you know, there's people that are still proud of you. I'm butchering the hell out of it. You can go read it if you want to. But that that type of stuff. And I think like if we talk about like Kiffin's mindset and change Lane Kiffin and all that stuff, I'm not saying he's changing as a human after one lost Alabama, but like that in a weird, in his own weird way, like kind of gives you some small glimpse into the way he thinks in the most indirect, like coded way possible. And now as he enters a week where to your point, he's got to win this sucker. If they want to have any expectations of winning the SEC West, they got to beat LSU. When the schedule came out this year, even though we were talking, you know, eight and four, seven and five, hey, I can maybe see nine and three. Given what happened around them in the first three to four weeks, it was you got to split Alabama and LSU. And man, if you go two and zero, oh, then you're really sitting pretty. But Georgia's kind of the weird thing walking in the mix after that. Point being, they just have to win this game, and it's going to be a totally different test. We can get to the Quinchon Judkins piece of it in a second, but when he was asked about LSU's defense, he was like. More physical, way bigger, going to be a lot tougher up front. It was like, whoa, okay, like this guy's not mincing words here. So I think that does underscore the challenge, though. Like this is going to be a massive test at home, and this feels like one of the first Kiffin back against the wall. How do you punch back games of his Ole Miss career? This is going to have to be a an all timer coaching effort. Um, I think when you talk about personnel wise, like yes, LSU has better players than Ole Miss, and you know we could go through it. I don't think it's necessary. Kiffin's going to have to coach the best offensive game since he's been at Ole Miss to win this one, truly. Because, I mean, they're not holding LSU to 24. And if they do, Pete Golden should have, like, literally double his salary um, because this is, like, the hottest offense besides Washington and college football right now. And that's, like, not hyperbolic at all. They have been incredibly efficient uh, these last two games against, you know, two okay teams, but still. I mean, that's just the, the matter of the fact He's going to have to get something going. And I, I don't want – I don't know what that's going to be, though. I don't know if it's going to be the similar kind of game plan against them last year where they just came out throwing the ball around the yard. I mean, look, they went up early against – 14-3. 17-3. 17-3. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember the biggest moment of that game. It's 17-10. They come, come back and score off that really weird Jaden Daniels throw where it's like a punt where our DB just completely lost the ball – uh dart has mingo streaking down the middle of the field on a double move and he misses him to make it 24 to 10 and after that it was the punch in the mouth that you didn't get back up from it's going to be a real long day if you get punched in the mouth in this game and don't get back up from it um 
it, it's massive. He's got to figure out a way to get the run game going. If the wide receivers are healthy, they're going to have plays out there to be made, and Dart's going to have to make the right reads and hit them. Because, look, the LSU DBs are bad. It's shocking, but they are legitimately not good. Uh, the LSU front seven, like Quinchon said, is probably more athletic and bigger than Alabama. Um, not as much depth necessarily, uh, but they've got, I mean, a lot of guys, man. I mean, they're, they're getting their middle linebacker back in spates, this transfer from Oregon State. They have no injury concerns. Brian Kelly said today, you know, everyone is going to be playing in this game offensively and defensively, so you're not getting a break there. Uh, you just have to make a lot of plays on offense. It's, you're going to have to outscore them, most likely, um, which is possible. It is absolutely possible. They have played better at home. They are. I mean, they have got the guys to do it on both sides of the ball, but it's going to have to be a coaching masterclass because LSU is coming and they are really, really good. I don't care. They played 20 minutes of really bad football against a team that might be one of the best in the country. Uh, they have completely turned around what they've been doing so far. Harold Perkins is back on the edge doing what he does. Um, it, it's going to be a tough task. It is absolutely doable, uh, but he's going to have to be damn near perfect. I completely agree. It's kind of the perfect test at this point in the Kiffin tenure, right? It's like, can you go outscore this LSU team that's been one of the hottest offense in college football? And barring just an absolute catastrophe from your defense where LSU scores like, you know, 52 or something yeah. like that. This is kind of the balls in your court. And how do you respond? And that kind of gets me back a little bit to not go back to the Alabama game, but the Pollyanna, I would say, pro Ole Miss Kiffin viewpoint is hey we had a bunch of dudes that have been injured for the first three games of the year like trey harris was not himself he was clearly our best receiver we hadn't had zakari franklin at all we hadn't had kaden prescorn to this until this game it was a lot of new dart talked about it dart was like man we still got a lot of new guys out there playing with each other for the first time on saturday kiffin mentioned it in the week leading up to alabama at some point where he's like you know a major portion of our offense in kaden prescorn has not been available yet like, if you want to give him a pass for the Alabama offensive performance is the fact that three of their four best offensive targets, when you talk about taking the top off of a defense now against a bad secondary, that was their first four quarters of football together. And one of them clearly was not 100% healthy in Harris. Yeah, I mean, I, I get that. But a lot of this you has see been it. known. It, you knew Franklin was hurt and had surgery, and you didn't know when he was coming back. You knew Prescorn got hurt whenever that was in fall camp, so he wasn't going to be ready. In fairness, I will give him a pass on this. That happened like four days before the first game. Oh, yeah, it did. No, 100%. But you knew after that, you're like, okay, we don't have right. this guy. What are we going to do next? And then, honestly, I mean, once Harris went down against Tulane, it's like, man, you can't have one guy go down and then everything be like, whoa, what the hell? And, of course, all this comes back really to the inability to run the football with your best player because um, everything else kind of just can really gel if you're able to do that. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think you're going to be healthier this game, which is going to be a huge added benefit. But even then, you're still going to have to make a lot of plays to beat this team. It's going to be fascinating. It's going to be one of the more fascinating weeks in this whole Kiffin trajectory era. Before I keep you for nine hours tonight, let's take a very quick look around the SEC. It wasn't like a totally earth-shattering weekend, but there were some results that were fascinating to me entering last week. Obviously, we got the Ole Miss-Alabama one out of the way. LSU-Arkansas. I think this was the most like, 
hey, the entire West is gettable game because Arkansas had lost to BYU the week before. LSU destroyed what I think is a bad Mississippi State team. It's like, okay, LSU's back. They're still the favorite in the West. I don't necessarily dispute that line of thinking based off anything I saw last weekend. But, I mean, there's nine different ways Arkansas could have won that game and they did not do it. No, yeah, Arkansas should have won that game. Absolutely. I mean, it really goes back to, like, the first possession they had when they should have scored a touchdown. They didn't come back in the red zone to get another field goal. And then after that, LSU scored in every single possession for the rest of the game. Um, we don't give K.J. Jefferson enough credit. He's so uh, much fun to watch play football. I've never gotten the criticism of him. I get it. I'm not the most, like, offensive savant where it's like, hey, like, this guy doesn't do this, this, and this. I just love watching a big dude who can run and can throw a little play football. He's a ton of fun to me. Yeah, he's just really good. I mean, they did all that without Rocket Sanders, too. I mean, they've got a pretty decent stable of running backs. You know, none of them are Sanders, but, like, they're more than serviceable. Um, the Arkansas offensive line uh, had maybe 10 false starts. Truly, I mean, literally 10 false starts. And, look, Tiger Stadium is, is hard to play in, but that was, like, a 70% Tiger Stadium. Uh, it was not what it usually can be, but, you know, I get it. Um they were really bad on the offensive line, and KJ just kept making play after play after play. Um, it was really, really impressive. Uh, defensively, Arkansas is pretty average, but, you know, they turned the ball over once. They got pressure on Daniels a few times. Uh, but at the end of the day, Malik Neighbors is just an absolute monster. Uh, he and Brian Thomas were just torching those Arkansas DBs play after play after play. Um, they got tired, and eventually it became sort of a shootout where it was who's got the ball last. LSU gets the ball with five minutes left, completely controls the clock. Sam Pittman, uh, an absolute coaching masterclass in how to lose games on the road, had yes, zero timeouts with 14 minutes and 30 seconds left in the fourth quarter. And zero when you're the CEO, that's kind of like, hey, don't screw this part of it up. It was bad. You know, the offensive line is his, is his baby and he's the head coach. The two things you have to be good at are time management and coaching your position. And they were the two worst things that happened in that game. Probably cost them the game. Not great. Uh, it was not great. Uh, they also refused to let LSU score uh, with a minute left with no timeouts when they were down at the one yard line. That's coaching mal malpractice. You have absolutely no chance to win that football game unless you let them score to get the ball back. Uh, and they did not do it. Um, so pretty big missed opportunity from Arkansas team that is not as bad as we thought. Probably not great, but getting Sanders back, um, I wouldn't be surprised they beat A and M. Uh, they're they're frisky. They're they're still decent. Uh, LSU, I mean, we, we've talked enough about them. And, you know, we know what they are. Bad DBs, really good offense. And then, like a week after Florida just manhandles Tennessee defensively, they they win twenty two to seven against Charlotte and don't score a touchdown in the second half. I think that's the perfect encapsulation of like what in God's name is the SEC this year. Yeah, I, I've kind of like gotten to the point the SEC and the way things work. Like these shit little games that if they, it's not a marquee they, game, okay, cool, whatever happens, you could not sure. No, I, sure. It doesn't matter. They got a, a big game on the road at Kentucky. You'll learn a lot more about both those teams coming up. I, I take nothing from any of these itty bitty games. I mean, Tennessee against Austin P was like almost down at halftime. They just don't. It's just clearly it's incredibly difficult to get these guys to play hard when they know they're going to win the football game. Yeah, exactly. I think that's very well said. And like you, I mean, Georgia's still playing with its food a little bit. I know that game's 49-21, but that's like three out of the four weeks where it's like, 
And the fourth one was the South Carolina game, which you wouldn't consider playing with its food. If it's like, hey, what are you guys doing here? And then they have like a 21 or a 28 point second quarter and it's fine. It's just, I think it's hard to get guys up in that game, in games like that in the portal era, even though Georgia didn't take a lot of portal kids. But I mean, it extends beyond that. Mizzou beats a top 15 team in Kansas State who I actually thought was really good. And I still think it's pretty good. And they struggled with Memphis. And I don't know, I don't pretend to know a ton about Memphis, but it was like, man, that, that would be a nice, like, hey, Mizzou wins this 41-20. And it's like, okay, this team might be pretty good. That was a game until the very end. And it Yeah, just- that's that's like one of the weirder situational spots you'll like you'll ever see. <laughs> I mean, Mizzou plays an 11 a.m. game. They're probably their biggest win in the Drinkwitz era. Then the next week they've got to play uh, Memphis at a neutral site game in St. Louis where you know you're getting their, you know, total package game coming from them, a game they think they can win. And you know what pretty good teams do is they overcome that uh, and they win, and they did. So I, I give them a lot of credit. The quarterback was kind of injured. I don't even th- – I think he played in the game, but he was hobbled up. Um, so, no, I give them a lot of credit for that. I, I don't think that makes them look bad. That's a weird situation to be in. Mississippi State, South Carolina, this is one that I tried to watch, but given the volume situation from the place I was at, it just wasn't working out a ton. State has a massive second quarter, even though despite Alabama – or excuse me, South Carolina controlled the game after that. The fact that State put that many points up and seemingly looked okay on offense, right? You got back to Rodgers with the whole uh, Mike Leach stat line. He was like 30 of 48 for 487, but with one touchdown and one pick. They didn't look nearly as bad. I'm not sold on South Carolina, but, man, that was, a t- that was a game that both of those teams had to win. And for better or for worse, I think a lot more of South Carolina's output for the rest of the season and what is the potential for them versus State, even though I don't think they're that different at teams. I want to give a lot of credit to both teams here. Uh, I'll start with South Carolina first. One, their fan base doesn't get enough credit. I mean, that place looked absolutely electric at night. A lot of buzz out of Williams Price over the last six days. It looked, I mean, it looked awesome. It looked awesome. Uh, so I give them a lot of credit. Spencer Rattler has been a top three SEC quarterback this year. Uh, they've played two teams that are better than them. They lost both of them, but absolutely none of that had to do with, uh, with uh, Rattler. He's been great. Really, I mean, he was exceptional in this Mississippi State game. I think he started uh, 17 of 17 for, like, three touchdowns. I mean, that's hard to do against a state defense that they're not great, but they're definitely not that bad. Um, South Carolina, talent, for sure. Yeah, South Carolina is not good on defense. The stats back it up. They are, they are not good in the back end. Uh, Mississippi State, though, I mean, they had maybe one of the worst offensive performances you'll ever see against LSU last weekend. And they have to go on the road against South Carolina. And they played uh, basically a completely different brand of football. Um, I give a lot of credit to them for doing that, for putting Rodgers in a better position to be successful, finally giving your best player the ball in Tulu. He was awesome in that game. Uh, they just got outscored. Um, I don't think Mississippi State's very good. I don't think – I think this was kind of throw everything at South Carolina game. This is a must win. You're going 0-2 in the league if you lose this. Um, and they did that, and they – I mean, they almost won this game. They just got outscored defensively. Rattler played better. Um, but, look, both sides – I mean, it's it's hard when you start one and two, um, when you're South Carolina and you have to play a massive game and you come out and play the way they did. That says a lot about that culture, about that team. Uh, and Beamer, who I kind of – you know, I jab him a little bit for being a little corny, but it's a pretty impressive output um, when you're basically – your season is on the line for a lot of goals that you've had. 
uh, Mississippi State, kind of the same deal, really. They just lost the game. Uh, but I give credit to both those teams. It was a pretty cool game, a lot of fun. I watched the highlights today, like the extended cut, like 20 minutes. I was like, it's a pretty, pretty entertaining game that kind of got lost in the shuffle with Notre Dame and Ohio State. What did you, before I wrap up with that, what did you make of not kneeling the uh, extra point? On what? Ohio State and uh, Notre Dame. It was like Notre Dame plus three as an action man. Ohio State oh. scores in the last play of the game. It is literally an untimed down, and those dudes ran it out there and kicked the extra point. It's like, oh, man, is the fix in? You shouldn't. Ryan Day did not get enough shit for that. Uh, <laughs> like, didn't get. I actually, I talked about it with some people after the game when I watched it happen. I was like, what the hell is he doing? Because that's the only way you can lose. The only way you can lose that game right there is if you kick an extra point and it gets blocked and they return it and you go to overtime. Uh, not kneeling there was a joke. I honestly completely forgot about that. Uh, probably not as egregious as having 10 players on defense for the final two plays of the game. On the yeah, it's line. a tough one to overcome. Uh, tough one to overcome, but uh, really fun game. I didn't really see much of it, obviously, because I was at the LSU game. Um, but those two teams are really good. Notre Dame's not dead yet. Um, Ohio State offensively is not what they have been, but this might be their best defense in a long time. Uh, they still got dudes. Now to go across the pond for the fastest growing segment on American soil to figure out who's dead and who's not. I'll tell you who's not dead, Manchester City, not even really being challenged. Are we about to see a historic goal differential? We're six matches into this sucker. They've scored 16 and allowed three. That seems like that'll hunt. Uh yeah. I mean, they were they've been just incredible. Uh they were really, really good in their Champions League game during the week. They actually let up a goal at the end of half to be down one zero and then came back and slaughtered. Uh, Red Star, and they go into the weekend, kind of a weird game. You know, they're kind of on the road. They're playing – I think they played Forest. Let me look real quick. Um, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, they play Forest uh, actually at home, and they had got a red card, kind of a weird game all around, and they just do what they do, and they get a result. Uh, they're damn, damn good. But they're not – they haven't completely separated themselves yet. They're only two points ahead of Liverpool – uh, who's been really good this year. They're only three points ahead of Brighton. I was about to say, Pete, the third one, uh, that, that's when my radar goes off. We got a non-blue blood up toward the top. Yeah, Best only run two. franchise or a team, whatever you want to call it, in the EPL, as we keep saying, this is not this is not a Cinderella. No, it's not. No, it is absolutely not. Um, so they haven't – I mean, look, it's obviously incredibly early, uh, and they're the prohibitive favorites. Uh, but they are separated completely from the rest of the pack yet. Toward the bottom, uh, I now do not see Lutton on the bottom, and that's because they had an absolutely earth-shattering draw against someone who I refuse to look up. But, uh, hey, they're out of the cellar. And then what really stood out here was the fact that you got Sheffield and Wolverhampton toward the bottom. We got the Portuguese team. We can't have them out of the league. What's going on here? It seems like Everton, I don't even know if they did anything very well, but, hey, they're at least not on the bottom anymore. Lutton, Burnley, and Sheffield United at the bottom. That feels like three teams that are primed to get relegated. Is that all three te promotional teams? Do we have a single promotional team that's not in the relegation zone right now? No, those are the three that came up. And I think those are the three that we kind of predicted would go back down, which is kind of coming to fruition uh, pretty obviously. Uh, Sheffield, they lost, uh, I believe it was 8-0 to uh, Saudi Castle. They got Yeah, that's murdered. not what you want. They have a they minus 12. And I, I use that. <laughs> yes. I use that murdered uh, term very lightly, knowing the situation. Um, 
So that was not great. Lutton got a, uh, I think it's Luton Town, actually. They got a result, which is you're going to have to get a few draws in order for you trying to attempt to stay up. Uh, Everton actually got a win. Uh, that was massive for them. That's why they're not out of it. But I uh, implore you to look at who is 14th. I am getting to that next to wrap up the fastest growing segment on American soil. There are four teams in the greatest league on earth with zero wins. There are four teams with one. I bet you could probably guess three of them, maybe two of them. I hate it for my Brentford beast. They have, they have one win. Everton has one. Wolverhampton has one. Chelsea six matches into the year. One win. Again, this is going to be the storyline I latch on to where I'm like, please, God, will this into existence? I know it's not going to happen, but can make me hope. So let's just look at their results this year. Can't Uh, wait. Why why don't we? So they start off the season. They actually played very well against Liverpool. They drew 1-1. They absolutely should have lost that game. Then they lose to West Ham 3-1. So let's remember, that's one. So they get one goal. Luton Town, they beat. That's like basically they should. Forest lose 1-0. Bournemouth draw 0-0. Aston Villa lose 1-0. They have not scored a goal in the EPL since August 25th through four matches. They have spent a billion dollars, and they have not won a game or scored a goal since August 25th against obviously the worst team in the league. It is not good. Um, We are getting very, very close to relegation zone for this team. And I'll tell you why, because would you like to hear who their next matches are against in the league? I would love to. You'll love to. Uh, On Wednesday – oh, actually, that's a League Cup game. Sorry. So they play at Fulham, at Burnley. So two road games. It's hard to get results, especially when you suck as bad as they do. And then here we go. You've got Arsenal at home, Brentford at home, at Tottenham, Versus City at Newcastle versus Brighton at United. So you are playing five of the top six and then a Brighton team who is much better than you in your next seven matches. So they what you're are- telling me is, I, as I learned last year with Arsenal, who was at the top the entire time, is that who it was? It wasn't Liverpool, right? Yeah, it was, it was Arsenal. Where I kept being like, hey, man, are they going to win this? Are they going to win this? And I was like, okay, long season here. But what you're telling me, this set next seven-match stretch, you could actually have a storyline to where it's like, hey, does Chelsea climb out of this? Where they probably end up doing it, but we at least get to have fun with it. Is that what I'm hearing? Oh, absolutely. No, it's it's a real thing. It is absolutely real. I mean, and then you look at their squad. I mean, injury-wise, they've got one, two, three, four, five. Five, six of their defensive players are out, four of which they bought this year. Uh, You've got one, two, three, four of their midfield is out. By the way, these squads aren't that big. It's not like you got a 53-man roster where you're pulling from them. Um, And then they've got a suspended striker, a hurt winger, and then Nkuku, who has not played like at all this season because he's hurt as well, another one of their big signings. They are in real trouble. Uh, Like – we're not there yet, but I think by the time we get to November, there's like a real chance that if this team doesn't figure it out, one, they'll be sacking their manager again, which is always fun. Love and two, that. they're going to find themselves in a first six-month relegation battle. I root for chaos. I root for sacking managers. I root for just awesome British headlines. And this feels like a story tailor-made for this podcast, given that you're a Man you guy. 
Chelsea's down at the bottom. I cannot wait to see where this goes. He is Weldon Rodenberg. This has been the fastest growing segment on American Soil Soccer Corner. I appreciate the time, dude, and we'll have a hell, hell of a lot to talk about next week. I'm sure that we will no matter what. See ya. All right, that's going to do it for our show today. Apologies for the tardiness. We've got a loaded slate of podcasts this week, including perhaps the podcast, potentially, I don't want to give it away yet, but perhaps the first actual famous person to ever come on this podcast. Hmm. I'll just leave it at that. We got more later this week. Thanks for tuning into this podcast as always. And uh, hit me up with your guesses on who it is.